Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So our teaching team met a few weeks ago and we were talking about Advent and wanting to do something just a little different, a little special for this series that we're in for the next few weeks leading up to Christmas. And what we thought would be great would be for you to get to hear stories that go along with the theme of the week from some different people in our congregation or people on our teaching team. And so uh, today we're going to get to hear David Alexi come up and share a story about a time when he really experienced God's love, because today is week two, the love week of Advent. So, ladies and gentlemen, David Alexi. Hey, so we were having our meeting, and James was like, man, I really want to have the people who exhibit the characteristics the most. So he was like, love, that's definitely David. And I was like, well, what about these other people? And he was like, no, let me tell you about them. So I have some dirt on everybody, and I know why you're not loving, Joel. Okay? All right, hey, so uh, when I was 16, this starts, it starts dark. When I was 16, uh, my friend Allie Heaton died in a car crash. I'm just going straight there, because that's where it starts. And at that point, I said, man, if the God that I follow is going to just take a 16-year-old kid who was, like, super nice, she was, like, a nice kid, she was a cheerleader, so she was popular, but she wasn't one of those cheerleaders who was like, oh, everybody's beneath me. She was like, nice. You know what I mean? Like the rare, nice, popular kid. And she got hit by a truck on some icy road. She slid around a curb. Boom. And that was it. Like, dead right then. And I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not cool with that. Like, that's not a God I want to be a part of. So I decided that I was going to be done with that. So I, you know, took my Bible and threw it in the house because I lived in the garage, which was way cooler. So I threw my Bible in the house because I didn't need that anymore. And I quit going to youth group and I quit hanging out with my friends who went to youth group because they were stupid because they believed in this God who just arbitrarily took people from you randomly. And I was done. And I was done for a solid, I don't know, nine months. I'm not super committed, I think. Um, But after nine months, (laughs) I'm sitting at my buddy Levi's house. And Levi lives out in the sticks. I grew up in Castle Rock. So we were like six miles out of town. And it's like 6.05, and youth group started at 6. And I'm like, I'm going to go to youth group. Like, Levi, I'm going to youth group. And he's like, okay, whatever. He never cared. So I got in my car, had to drive into town. So I roll in, and it's like 6.25-ish. And I get out of my car, and I come around, and I still (laughs) – I really didn't think I was going to drive. Like, come on, David. I come around the corner of my car, start walking towards the youth room. And my youth pastor at the time opens the door, because he saw me from the window, opens the door, and he goes, there you are. I was like, there I am. Like, it's been nine months, bro. And he's like, we we were waiting for you. And I was like, what do you mean you were waiting for me? And he was like, I was praying today, and God told me you were going to be here tonight. I hadn't been there in nine months. Like, it's not a little amount of time. God told me you were going to be here today, so we waited. that that was God's love like I, it was a very uh, the definition of love I looked it up 
because that's who I am. I love things up. Is a deep affection for someone. And God had a deep affection for me. He told them to wait. And it doesn't seem like a big thing to just wait. 25 minutes. I grew up in a really big family. We don't wait for people. (laughs) It's just not a thing that's done. And they waited. And that right there was when I felt God's love more than anything else in the whole world. Because he, he waited on me. That's it. Thanks. Man, that was thanks, David. That's a that's a great story. I um I didn't think you were gonna cry either. I feel like you, man, you set the bar really high. This series is <laughs> no one's gonna sign up for what next week now. Um, you know, I, I think love is it's hard to explain. Uh, David just recited a definition for it, and that's a great definition. You maybe have other definitions in your mind, but. When you try to take a concept like love and, and bring it down to words, it can be a difficult thing to do. And yet, I think every single one of us knows what it's like to connect with that concept on an experiential level. You know what it, it feels like when you have felt love. I think part of the reason that emotions can get stirred up when we talk about love is because there's a powerful feeling attached. And to know that the family, you know, God tipped them off that you were coming and they're waiting for you. Can That kind of experience really roots this idea of love. It's much easier to experience love and to feel it, I think, than it is to maybe dissect it in a classroom and try to talk about it and all the elements and, and all of that. It's one of those things that's easier to understand as you experience it and you walk through it rather than something that you can get your mind around just simply through talking. You know, during Advent, we're looking forward to uh, this this idea that we're celebrating Christ's arrival at Christmas. So all of Advent season, from the first Sunday to the last, well, till Christmas Day, we are looking forward and anticipating and, and being excited about this idea that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I think one of the reasons that Jesus came to earth was to show humanity how humanity was meant to to live. I think one of the reasons Jesus came to earth was to to embody God's love in human form and to allow us to experience the love of God in a way that, that people could see and, and touch and really feel and, uh, and, and experience in their daily life. In the story of creation from the book of Genesis, uh, this portrait of humanity is painted where we, we come away with this idea that that humanity was created with a purpose, that God had this idea. He wanted to create humanity in his image so that humanity could be his representatives, his partners here on, on, in his created world on, on planet Earth, um, embodying the love of God, the rule and the reign of God into creation. The idea being that God would inhabit his creation and establish his reign and rule through human beings who were made in his likeness. These human beings were made to live in a loving relationship with God 
and a loving relationship with one another, and through that, to, to again, to embody his presence here in our world. In Genesis chapter 3, humanity steps out of this loving relationship with God, and, and largely because this character comes along, the serpent, who slyly seduces humanity into living outside of this loving connection with God. In the story uh, from Genesis chapter 3, and you can turn there, we'll kind of be reading it in bits and pieces if you want, um, but you don't have to. You can just listen and follow along in your mind if you want as well. But in the story, the serpent does this in, an, in a few particular ways. Step one was the serpent comes and engages the humans in a conversation about God as if God were not really there. In the story, he comes to the woman and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And as the serpent comes up and asks the woman that question, the woman, instead of asking God, hey, what's going on here? Come, come, come and help. The serpent showed up and is talking to me. The, it, humanity takes the bait. They don't turn to God or cry out to him. Rather, they engage the serpent on their own. Eve answers, we may eat from the fruit. We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God, sorry. So he says, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Then Eve responds, yeah, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we cannot eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and we must not even touch it or else we will die. So the serpent comes and engages Eve as if God's not there. Eve is happy to move into that territory to have a conversation about God like he's not there. And in that moment, we, what we are witnessing is a space that is suddenly created in the heart of humanity, a space where a connection with God used to fill it, but now we're suddenly, because we've made assumptions about God and who he is and where he is, he's been pushed out of that space. And, and I can kind of see even the story grasping to fill that new space that's been created with something. She fills the space where God should be close to her in relationship, where she should be able to just turn to him and say, God, I know you're everywhere. I know you're here with me. The serpent's talking to me, asking questions about stuff. Would you help me out here? Instead, she fills that space with her own interpretation of what God had said in the past. What she really needs is God to be present and to speak here now, but she reaches back for an interpretation of what he said in the past. Careful readers of the story of Genesis will notice that her interpretation is slightly inaccurate. When you read further back, when God gives the commands about the trees, he doesn't tell them they can't even touch it. He tells them they shouldn't eat it. And Eve, as she's relaying what God has said, has added her take on the commandment, which is just a little bit different than what God said. This interpretation becomes super fertile soil for the serpent to begin to plant seeds of distrust between humanity and God. The serpent says, you're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open and then you'll be like God. You'll be knowing good and evil. The serpent finds this fertile soil of an inaccurate interpretation of what God has said and who God is and plants into that this thought that God cannot be trusted, that God is somehow keeping something from humanity, and that 
what humanity needs to do right now is reach out and take that thing. There's a violation of, of humanity's trust in God. And because that trust is now suddenly violated, the hu human's ability to give and receive love from God becomes undermined. And this presents humanity with an opportunity to violate God's trust. Oh, you've told me God's not trustworthy. You've told me that he's holding out on me. Now I'm suddenly feeling like, you know what? I don't have to do what he says. Maybe I can disobey him. Maybe I can take something for myself. Actually, this idea that I could be like God, that I, I could, you know, not need him anymore, that I could figure out how to rule and reign in my own sense of right and wrong, that sounds like a great idea. And suddenly humanity wants to do that. They want to possess for themselves the thing that they were only ever meant to possess in relationship with God, being able to decide for themselves what right, what is right and what is wrong. Verse 6 says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, she saw it was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining women, wisdom. And so she took some and then she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. So the, the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, come to the tree. They are looking at the tree. The fruit looks good. I imagine they reach out and touch it, and they're like, oh, we didn't die. We didn't die. We thought if we touched it, we would die. We touched it, we didn't die. Now we're going to eat it. Now we eat it. They think, now we're going to have wisdom. This fruit's going to be really good. This is going to work out great. But things go horribly wrong. And in the moment that they act on this disobedience and eat the fruit and their eyes become opened, things go horribly wrong. These beings who were created to live in God's love and to experience his presence and to be at home in his presence find themselves afraid. These people who were meant to be living in one another's presence and at home and comfortable and able to be vulnerable with one another, they eat the fruit and suddenly their eyes are open and they realize they're naked and they're ashamed and they're afraid. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you have these people, Adam and Eve, who presumably have heard God walking in the garden before. I don't know how they'd recognize the sound if they hadn't heard it before. And yet in this moment, when God begins to move amongst the garden, rather than coming run, running to him, as they presumably had in times past, they're running away from him and they're hiding. And we have this picture of God coming and calling out to them, where are you? What are you doing? Children who had experienced the delight of their maker, who had spent, you know, who knows how long, walking with him. I mean, we know that they named all the animals in the world. That part's in the story. That must have taken some time. We know that they've been tending to God's garden. We know they've been living in this loving relationship. And yet now they've, they've done something. That relationship has been changed. And now they're hiding in terror, and what we have is a picture of paradise being lost. And it's lost so significantly that humanity doesn't even know what love looks like anymore. They don't even recognize it when it comes walking up to see them. 
when God comes looking for the man and the woman and calling out to them, they're hiding from them, from, from him. God asks them questions that invite them into responses that would be humble and, and, uh, and vulnerable, saying, what is this you have done? And, and instead of responding in humility and vulnerability, Adam throws Eve under the bus. Ah, it's not my fault. It's all her fault. Eve plays the blame game as well. And their relationship with God is no longer one that's defined by love, but it's one that's filled with self-deceit and self-preservation. So instead of relating to God as, as one who loves them and they love freely, they're now relating to God with self-preservation motives and self-deceitful motives. I mean, Adam should have known, hey, this is on you. And yet he throws Eve under the bus. Eve should have known, yeah, this is on me. How different would the world look if in that moment when God confronted them, they just said, oh, man, we really messed up, Lord. Help us. Forgive us, Father. Humanity has struggled in our relationships with each other and with God ever since. Self-deceit and self-preservation really seem to be the thing that governs how we relate to one another. That's our default. I think in affluent societies like ours, self-preservation becomes even more warped and it becomes self-gratification. And so where we may feel relatively preserved in life, we have to reach out for something even more. And so it becomes less about eating enough food for the day and more about eating the food that I like. And Scripture paints a portrait of this humanity who becomes so lost and so relationally dysfunctional apart from God that we don't even know how to get back. We don't even know what it looks like to get back. And God steps into this world and into this world where humanity is in a fallen state, and he begins to reintroduce himself to humanity. He begins a process of restoring, restoring relationship and, and revealing himself to humanity. Part of this process involves God calling the family of Abraham and then choosing the nation of Israel and progressively bringing these brighter revelations of who God is through the testimony of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then this, this whole entire process is meant to culminate in the arrival of a Messiah. Someone who will come and, and finally undo the brokenness and finally restore humanity and set up an eternal kingdom where God and humans will dwell together in a loving relationship once again. And yet when this Messiah comes, despite all the revelation that's come to the people of God before that, despite all the training that's happened for God's people through the Old Testament, they still don't get it. Jesus doesn't come and find people remarkably capable of love in the Jewish nation. He finds people who are remarkably lost. He finds people who, at the end of the day, are incapable of love. Because at the end of the day, they're, they've tied themselves to self-deceit and to self-preservation. Those two tendencies are still winning the battle for the decisions humans make. At the end of the day, the human goes to bed saying, I'm not really as bad as that other guy. Or they say, I deserve this, and that's how they assert their right to rule over each other. And so God comes in a human form, and he comes to live differently. He comes to show a different way. It's not enough to send a word to the prophet. It's not enough to record the, the teachings in the book of the law. What humanity needs is someone to come and actually get this right so we can see that and experience that. 
Jesus came to shine a light on this darkness that had entangled humanity up. He came to illuminate this path to freedom. There's a different way to live. You don't have to live in self-deceit and self-preservation any longer. Jesus came to fulfill humanity's created purpose, to embody the love of God, to be an ambassador of his rule and his reign here in creation. It's part of the reason Jesus' testimony is the kingdom of God has come near because God in human form is now doing what humanity was always designed to do, to establish a kingdom here in our world. The word of God became flesh so that we could see him, we could touch him, we could experience life with a real human being here on the planet. When Jesus walked the earth, it was the first time that a fully human human being had walked the earth since that had been lost in the garden. It was the first time that the earth was gifted with the presence of a human being who's fully alive and fully living as he was meant to live. Jesus modeled what it truly means to be human. And every time that we fall short of the example that he modeled for us, every time that we make a decision out of those other motives or we aren't doing things out of a loving relationship with God, we're eroding the humanity that we were created to live in. For this moment in history, Earth got to experience someone living fully as a human being in her midst. They got to experience what it means for God's image to really be present here on earth. The Old Testament, the the law, the prophets, the history of the nation of Israel, it was kind of like that classroom. God's speaking through different things. There's different object lessons happening. The Ten Commandments. These are the ways that a covenant people will live toward one another and live toward God. God gave them a tabernacle. It's dressed up with all this imagery of of garden and creation, this idea, this is where, this is what it looks like in the place where God dwells with people. This is what it's supposed to look like. And those things were great, but there's no substitute for God actually showing up in the flesh. And then suddenly the symbols are no longer needed, right? Because he's here. We see him. The real thing is here. As people got to walk with Jesus and to see him and hear him teach and, and, and all of that, Jesus began to sum up all of these object lessons, uh, the law and the prophets. He summed them up with one command. He said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. It's almost like Jesus is, he's trying to, I guess in a sense, make it real, right? And we, we could almost think of that as like a simplifying process, like, Okay, we have all these object lessons that have been given to us over time. We don't really understand what what love is, and we're really incapable of walking in it. And then Jesus comes, and he gives us the example. And he says, this is what you've got to do. You've got to love one another as I have loved you. So see what I did, and do that for one another. There's an example there, but then there's also an empowerment that comes. Because God is now present in his world in a different way. God is now present in humanity in a different way. And, and we see that process sort of happening in the scripture in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit being sent and being with disciples. And we believe that we live in an age when God's spirit is, is alive in the hearts of every follower of Jesus. 
And so there's this hope that the creator is somehow present in creation in a different way today than he was, you know, in Genesis chapter 4 through uh, the end of Malachi um, in our Bibles. Um, Jesus is inviting his followers to walk in his footsteps and to embody God's divine love in a fallen and a broken world in the way that he did. In John chapter 15, Jesus spent some time talking with his disciples. This is sort of his last sermon before he goes and dies on the cross. And and in his time, he says to them, this is my commandment, that you would love one another as I have loved you. He continues and he says, there's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. If we think of Jesus as the first true human, living to show humanity how we were created to live, then this command, and then especially the example that follows it, becomes really, really important for understanding how we find fulfillment in our own lives. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it look like to be a human being who's fully living out who we were created to be? If we're following Jesus' example, I think it means expressing the love of our creator for the people around us by laying down our lives for one another. This requires that we end up abandoning all self-deceit, right? That thought that wants to jump inside your head and say you're better than somebody else or you're more deserving than someone else or you're not as bad as somebody else. However you phrase it, if you're going to truly love people, you have to stop believing you're better than them. It means abandoning self-deceit. It also means abandoning self-preservation. When Paul's writing to the church in the New Testament, one of the things he commands them to do is to consider others as more worthy than yourselves. And so it takes that tendency that we have to think that we're more deserving and this should be for us before it's for them. And it flips it on its head and it says, they are more deserving than you. They are better than you. That's a hard thing to do. Because the human tendency is to put me first. What does it look like to be a full, fully human? What does it look like to be a, a, real, a real human being living in God's love? It means abandoning these things. Abandoning our self-preserving tendencies. Abandoning the self-deceit. And living to be a blessing to those around us. I think it means dedicating our lives to this healing mission that Jesus was on throughout his ministry. Being God's vessels of restoration in a broken world. I think when I consider Jesus' life, I'm struck by the fact that that his life is bookended with two dramatic expressions of love. At his birth, at Christmas time, we're really familiar with the first expression. And that's that he just showed up. What a thought. The creator of the universe shows up in his world. He was willing to come so close to humanity so that we could come close to God. He showed up. At the end of his life, Jesus demonstrated his love through the fact that he wasn't just willing to show up, but he was willing to pay it all, to sacrifice, to lay his life down. He didn't just show up and say, here I am. He showed up and he gave everything that he was for us. He didn't withhold any part of himself from this mission of 
redeeming humanity. He offered up his life. Suffering, uh, death on a cross. And the phrase I like to say is he, he joins humanity in the death that we were suffering so that we could be joined to him in his divine life. I think if you find yourself confused about love today or wondering what does it really look like to embody the love of God in a dark world, I really think that we can look at Jesus. We can look at the baby who showed up. And we can look at the week ahead of us and we can be determined to show up for it. Could it be that you are the part of the divine image that's meant to invade some point of darkness this week? Some place where people need to see the love of God. They need to experience the love of God. Could it be that you have a unique place in our community and on the space-time continuum to fill in that role? I really think it could. I really think that there could be a divine purpose for where you go from here and who you interact with this week. And that's something that I think the Spirit wants to empower us to make good on where we would show up and our presence would make a difference. And I think one of the ways that we make a difference is living so counter to our humanistic tendencies, right? Where we would show up and we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We would look to the king who at the end of his life lays down his life on the cross, sits on the cross and says, this is what love is. This is what it means to be fully human. Offer up yourself as a sacrifice for your friends. Lay down your life for your friends. And trust that God's divine life is going to somehow make it work. I mean, the part that keeps us away from crucifixion is the whole dying part, right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to lay down my life for other people because I really don't want to die. This is where a little bit of trust becomes important, right? Are we people who trust God and his ability to raise the dead? Or are we people who are going to cling to our life and not fulfill what we were created to do, not truly live? Each week we close the service by turning to the table uh, that we call it the Lord's table. It's set with bread and some grape juice. And, and we set it because on that night, John 15, 16, 17, Jesus met in the upper room with his disciples. They were celebrating the Hebrew Passover dinner. And he took bread at that dinner and he said, this bread is my body and it's, it's broken for you. I want you to take it and eat it as often as you gather in remembrance of me. And it's almost like he's setting the church up, or maybe it is like he's setting the church up to tell this story to each other over and over again. God came in a body. And laid it down for us. It was broken for us. Love did not withhold anything from us in our moment of need. And then after he ate with his disciples, he took a cup after dinner and he passed around the cup of wine. We don't, we don't do wine here because um, we're worried it's not holy enough. So he passes the cup around and he says, this cup is my blood. The blood of a new covenant. This new covenant is described by the Apostle Paul as a new reality where God is no longer counting men's sins against him. It touches on this idea of unconditional love. 
And I hope that when you come to church and you sit down in your chair or you stand and sing or you listen to the word, you interact with each other, I hope that somewhere deep inside you, you understand you could not be more loved than you are in this moment. That there's nothing you could ever do to separate yourself from God's love. Because he has made a new covenant with humanity where he's no longer counting our sins against us, but he's reconciling us, sons and daughters of the king, into the family of God. I think the reason that we are commanded to gather at the table every week is because we need that reminder. This is what love is. The creator of the universe offering up his life for us. This is what love is. A man dying for his friends. And somehow as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, it's meant to become a part of us and a part of our story so that we can go and be fully human ourselves living in our world and loving those around us and laying down our lives for them. Let's pray and we'll have the team come up and we'll have communion together. Lord, we thank you so much for coming. We thank you for showing up. We thank you that you were so passionately in love with us. You would have never thought of doing anything else. There was never any doubt that you would show up and rescue humanity. Lord, as we sit here today in different places of need, we just ask your spirit to affirm in our own hearts that there's never any doubt you will show up. You are committed to us. We are not alone. We thank you that in showing up, you offered up your life, that you allowed your body to be broken, that you poured out your blood, establishing this wonderful new covenant where our sins are no longer counted against us, where that decision to take the fruit is overcome by your incredible love. Lord, we thank you that you do that each and every day in our lives. And we just ask your Holy Spirit to empower us to live in that reality. We want to be people who are living free of sin because you're no longer counting it against us. We need help to get there. So deliver us today from self-deceit. Deliver us from our self-preservative tendencies. Make us people who live and love just like you do and just like you do. In Jesus' name, amen.